Listener Production. with Greta Lee Jackson, where I speak to well-known or successful people about moments where they failed and it eventually turned into something that helped them on the road to success. Failure can do funny things to people. Some people get crushed by it. Some use it to turn their life around. But some people use it to fuel their plans of revenge. My whole life, I'd wanted to be good at dancing. I went to classes from age preteen onwards, hoping to learn how to accomplish impressive physical feats and in doing so, be one of the pretty skinny girls. The pretty skinny girls who could do the splits and wore pale pink tutus and pale pink cardigans and pale pink leg warmers. Not the chubby, clumsy, monobrowed girl in the mambo t-shirt with a picture of a dog farting. I hoped I could be like the dancer girls. Now hope is one thing. But actually being in the class was a whole other reality. The reality of my body not moving with the same ease and grace as the other girls. They could stick their legs above their heads and I could barely get mine to a 90 degree angle. They could leap and body roll and high kick and I could manage to do a generic rhythmic convulsing to the tune of Shoop by Salt and Pepper. And I was aware of how painfully obvious it must have been for everyone. The shame of being the odd one out. How desperately I wanted to be a feminine dancing fairy. I was so clearly behind everyone else in whatever class I was attending. Whether I started too late in life to be as good as the others, which is what I told myself, or I just naturally was not genetically flexible or graceful, which was probably the case, I would always start a class for a bit, realise I sucked compared to everyone else, drop out for a year or so, and then start again for a bit and repeat the pattern. The irony is, if I had just stopped comparing myself to the others and just stuck with it, I probably would have caught up eventually, rather than talking myself out of it, then talking myself back into it and forever starting at square one. And I kept up this cycle well into my 20s, and I've never stuck with it long enough to be good. While I was at university, I was heavily into the review scene. Now that's review spelt R-E-V-U-E and it basically refers to a big variety show that the students belonging to the Review Society would put on twice a year, filling it with sketch comedy, video skits and big song and dance numbers. Each of these review shows was known to contain an elite dance number which went by the name of Crack, apparently being short for Crack Squad. My first year I ever did a review, I was in one of the talk myself into it periods and had started regularly attending a beginner ballet class. And, on a whim, I decided to try out for the crack dance. I can't remember exactly what happened, but I got in. This was it. Finally, validation. Acceptance. I was a dancer. The routine was to some duet by Britney and Madonna and I did not get a solo and I think I was the only one who could not do the splits, but that didn't matter. I was in crack. The following year, I figured I was a shoe in for crack. I'd done it once, so surely I could do it again. I was a dancer now. So imagine my horror when, after the tryouts, I wasn't selected. The shame of never being good enough is one thing, but the shame of knowing what it's like to be good enough and then rejected is humiliating. 
It's like when my favourite cupcake shop when I was a kid got new owners and the cupcake recipe changed entirely and the icing was all hard and they started to use those cheap spherical hundreds and thousands rather than the far superior cylindrical pastel-coloured sprinkles I'd grown to love. Those new cupcakes made me upset because I knew what they could be. I knew what was possible, but I was being denied that by forces beyond my control. By this point, I'm sure you can see the correlation between a kid who was a diehard cupcake purist and a kid who was the chubbiest in the dance class. Funny that link didn't strike me at the time. So what did I do? How did I cope with being a crack reject? Well, a spiteful attempt at humour, of course. I recruited three girlfriends from the review cast who not only didn't get into crack, but they didn't even try out for it. Oh, to be that carefree and to not have jazz ballet ability as a value metric. So we choreographed an entire joke dance routine full of terrible moves and innuendo and clowning around with exposed G-strings and performed it after the final show as a surprise for everyone. The routine was set to Dirty by Christina Aguilera, or as she went by at the time, Extina, which we felt was the ultimate parody song to highlight the ridiculousness of sexy dancing. It was a lot of fun and everyone had a good laugh. But I can honestly say now, that while the intentions of the other three were probably as pure as Christina Aguilera circa Mickey Mouse Club, my intention was to engineer one big fuck you to the good dancers and the choreographer for daring to insinuate to me that I was not a good dancer. It was revenge. Petty, elaborate revenge, orchestrated through the medium of comical dance. And to this day, I think I'm the only person who really knew that. My guest today is Josie Goldberg. Josie is almost as much of an embodiment of Los Angeles as the semi-mythical Angeline. If you don't know who that is, look it up. Born and raised in Beverly Hills, the daughter of a prominent Russian Jewish real estate mogul, Josie's dream of being a famous Hollywood actress, or at least the famous part of it anyway, landed her on Farmer Wants a Wife, Millionaire Matchmaker and an episode of Dr. Phil called Spoiled and Entitled. Now, this is where I first saw Josie and became fascinated by her boldness and unwillingness to back down when challenged. On the show, her comments about racial stereotypes earned her notoriety, but it's certainly not one she's ever shunned. In fact, quite the opposite. Josie has been chasing that spotlight ever since, even capitalising on her Dr Phil buzz by naming her personal brand of clothing and her racehorse Spoiled and Entitled. She's now in the business of rearing racehorses and credits her success in that arena to knowing what she wants and not taking no for an answer. Josie's values are strong, but oddly contradictory. Perhaps because she's so unconventional, Josie is undeniably entertaining. And this quality is what a lot of her personal success is built on, as well as, to put it bluntly, revenge on those who have wronged her. She does not hold back on the truth, no matter what that truth is. And her theory that God is kind of like her personal bodyguard dealing out retribution to her former flames motivates her to turn her relationship fails into successes. Well, I kind of believe that, um, you know, I believe in God and I believe that, um, you know, God sends us things that we need. And I've noticed that like in the times where I thought, you know, I went to college, I went to grad school, I did everything by the book. And I've noticed, you know, every time where I fall to my knees, I think my life is over. I have no direction. I'm a perennial failure. 
and I just get a miracle and I just run with it. I kind of take whatever's there and I make the best of it. Yeah, you do because you're a former reality TV star. Yeah. You're now a um, brand owner, successful brand owner that you actually built out of um, an appearance on the show, Dr. Phil. Yeah. It was an episode called Spoiled and Entitled and your brand is called Spoiled and Entitled. So I guess I just kind of want to get a sense of how one led to the other. Like what were you doing at the time, then Dr. Phil happened and then what came of it? I was 28 years old. I was in a movie called Hollywood and Wine. I was a Playboy model. I did Millionaire Matchmaker. I did Farmer Wants a Wife. I remember it was October of 2010 And it was Friday night and I don't know what happened, but like I crashed and burned. I wasn't getting invited to any celebrity events anymore. So this was before Dr. Phil? Yeah, this was before Dr. Phil. I posed for Playboy. Um, I got a little bit of celebrityism. I was sitting in my apartment. It was Friday night and I was just laying in bed and I felt empty. And I remembered that, you know, that these kind of times in my life where I felt like emptiness there were always times that I received like a message from God. And I remember it was like Friday night. It was about 7.30 at night. And um, I get a phone call from a uh, casting producer over at Dr. Phil. Her name was Kia. And she said, hi, my name is Kia. Um, I was referred to you by this casting director that put you on Millionaire Matchmaker. Um, We're doing a show called Spoiled and Entitled. And there's a girl named Erica from uh, The Bachelor. And we would like to know, like, how spoiled and entitled are you? And Greta, I remember that um, at that point, Brett Ratner um, told me I was fat. He laughed at me and um, I asked him to shoot me for the cover of Playboy. And he told me that Playboy was beneath me and him and that he shoots only campaigns for like Jimmy Choo and, you know, Baby Fat and Mariah Carey and that I just need to like stop looking for the easy way out. And then I find out, you know, that he has a girlfriend who's a supermodel who's not really like sexy. She's more of like she's been in Victoria's Secrets and Vogue and Elle. She's like one of those supermodels. And he shot her for the cover and of Playboy of Playboy. And I was just like, like mortified. And he told me, he's like, look, this is what you have to look like to be in Playboy. And so what I did is... Well, I kind of quickly interject. Why, why was Brett Ratner on the scene? Well, I was introduced to Brett Ratner in 2009 by a rabbi in Miami. And he said, oh my God, I have the perfect husband for you. I, my best friend is Brett Ratner and you two are going to be a match. And I, I remember hearing that about Brett Ratner. But when I got home and Googled him, I was like, wow, this is like A-lister style. And, and that's your dream. That was your dream. That was my dream. Was dream. Yeah. And and we, you know, anyways, our relationship, you know, didn't work out. And we had a lot of issues because, you know, he told me that he wanted a wife that nobody knew just to breed him Jewish children. And I remember sitting at his house and he said to me, don't you understand? I'm like, what? He's like, I have women I'm attracted to. I have women that I love. And I have women that I work with that are A-list style. And I have everything I ever wanted. Do you know why? He said, I want you, what you can offer me. And I looked at him. I said, well, if you don't want sex, if you don't want love, if you don't want my talent, like, what do you want from me? He's like, you have the ability to give me what no other woman can give me. And that's a Jewish life. And I want you to have, you know, Jewish children. And when I come home, I want to have 
that Jewish life. Can't you just do a little bit for me? Because I was 26 years old and figured that like, you know, I marry him, have a child. If things don't work out, I have a base like foundation to go back to. I, I felt like I was at my prime that if I married him and had kids, when he dumped me, I would have like nothing. I just, I just knew that God and the, as I'm a creative person, I didn't hit my niche, like my niche or whatever you call it, like my horse racing career, my brand, but I knew that I was going to hit something big in Hollywood. Like I just knew that, that creatively I was going to find like my passion. And I told him and he said, look, I will never put my wife on the cover of Playboy. Everybody talks about Brett Ratner as this lover, as this womanizer. And I don't know if we didn't have chemistry or if maybe he wanted to like have a child with me, but I probably would have married him, but he never brought me the contracts with the lawyer. It was always like games. Like he just wanted me, I I felt in my head that he wanted me to be on zero. So whenever he called, I would go running. And my goal always was like when I turned 24 and I posed for Playboy, I liked having a little bit of that celebrityism because I feel like when women are successful, you have more power and you have more of a control. So when he did this thing with Playboy, um, I was so hurt because I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's not he's like- He's told you one thing and he's done the exact opposite. He stole my idea from me. And when he texted me that he was shooting her cover, um, I started like crying. I, I couldn't stop for like 13 hours, but I, I felt like I, I was dying. I was so angry. I was so, so broken. I felt like somebody just killed me, buried me, spit on me. And it just, I was mortified. So I uh, started crying and screaming. And when I get really angry, I, I calm down and then I get vindictive. And that's a, something I have to work out with a therapist. When I was younger, I used to get vindictive. Not like against the law, but like I think, okay, well, I'm gonna show this. This I call him a shtimp. He was five eight, five nine. He was a little shtimp. You know, I said, I'm gonna teach this shtimp, shtimp a lesson. So I called over to Playboy and I asked to speak to the manager and Hefner in the marketing. And I started crying. I said, please don't publish this cover. I said that was supposed to be me, and I'm one of your models. So you know what Playboy did, Greta? They pulled the cover and they put Marge Simpson on the cover like a character, and they gave him the alternate cover. So I texted him back. <laughs> So cool. So I texted and I said, ha ha ha. He flipped out. He called the rabbi that introduced us. And then he called me crying. And he's like, well, would you like to meet and talk? I said, no, Brett. I said, I might've loved you. I might've wanted to be with you. But you know what? I said, if God can give me a little bit of success, I don't need a short motherfucker like yourself. And, and I just gave it to him. Looking back, like maybe I should have played my cards differently, got the cash cow, had a, a nice, beautiful baby or two, because I think that we would have produced good Jewish kids. But I don't think so, Josie. I'm sorry. Well, I have to disagree with you there. I think there was only part, one path to take and you can't be... Can you imagine yourself being someone's second banana? You can't. Can you be imagine being Mrs. Ratner and that's it? So yeah. What was interesting is that after this happened, um, a couple months later, I get a phone call from Dr. Phil and uh, this casting director. She's like, why do you think you're spoiled and entitled? And I said, well, I'm spoiled and entitled to marry a tall A-list director that's not 5'8 like Brad, but that's Ivy Leaguer that treats me well. I can open my doors. And that's what kind of landed me on Dr. Phil. And so when I went on Dr. Phil, you know, I, I was angry at Brad. I didn't know that my anger and my, this was going to lead me to my brand. And I thought about it and I said, because of Brett Ratner, I had this wonderful story of spoiled and entitled that. So because of Brett kind of, uh, I created spoiled and entitled. And so that was the first time that God blessed me and showed me some 
uh, not revenge, but like for me, like if if he if he would have got the main cover of with this model, I mean, I would have been crying and miserable. But it, it helped the fact that Marge Simpson graced the cover, <laughs> and then you get to go on Doctor Phil and and then can pour salt in the wound. Yeah, and then I got to go on Doctor Phil and yeah. and say that. But um, yeah, it was I just was in destruction derby. Um, I was just really beat down. I was twenty eight years old and. Um, it's really hard when you're full figured like me. I'm not a size zero, but I'm not a size 10. I'm like a six or eight. And it's harder for tall, full figured women when we're used to men that are like six, two, six, three, and six, four. And you go out with these five, nine, five, teners and maybe six footers and you just feel so big. Right. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> so that's funny. So when we're watching that tape of you going, I'd like to marry a person that's this, 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 and listing off all the things that's basically going, that's basically a fuck you to Brett Ratner. Basically, well, yeah, at the Bre- time, at yeah, the time, because Brett Ratner graduated from NYU, so he was funny. an Ivy League. He still graduated from a, a good school. So when I met Milch, who was Milch is very handsome, David Milch. He's older. He's like my dad's age, but like 15, 20 years younger. I, this is he. I would have married him. Like he was everything I ever wanted in a man. He was intellectual. I went to Yale. He stuttered as a kid, like I did. When I mean, we we had these conversations. I was just so enamored by him. Like I've never met somebody that I thought was my level. And when I went to dinner with him he closed down the restaurant one night i just fell in love with down the restaurant he closed down the restaurant yeah tell me me about this tell me about david milch what the hell happened tell me okay so after dr phil wrapped um what you put in the universe kind of happens because after that show i ended up meeting david milch who is a six foot four yale graduate who created nypd blue deadwood all these shows on hbo so um i kind of said to him i'd like to do maybe like a little part here and there he's like look i'm gonna give you a part i'm gonna write you in i don't want to hear anything more i'm very busy but i like you and you're gonna work but he's just offering you work straight away right away nothing he just saw me and that's it right away he just liked what he saw and that was it you know so i'm like okay and this was like in june july so for like the next like three or four months Every month I'd call David Milch and send him different like Playboy pictures, resumes. I would just send dramatic or sexy or sportive. Look at my range. Yes, I just, you know, whatever. I thought, where else am I going to meet an executive or director, creator like this? So um, I remember I went to Miami for the New Year because I always like to go to Miami. And um, I called his office and I talked to his assistant and I said, hi, my name is Josie Goldberg. I was promised a part a speaking part from your boss, David Milch. And I'm not going to get a restraining order. I'm not going to play any more harassing games. I would really like him to keep his promise. And um, this is my last phone call. And I'd like you to give him that message. Let's interject. What, what's a restraining order? What games? What? Well, I, you know, you never know. You, you call people once, you call him twice. And then uh, he, I didn't want to harass the guy. You know, if, obviously he didn't want to talk to me so or else he would have called me back right just want an answer yeah i just wanted to answer but i didn't want to harass him so i'm laying in my bed same situation laying in my bed i think my life is over it's like 10 o'clock in the morning the sun is shining and i'm like hello he's like hey josie this is david milch and i like i said not ah this is not david milch (laughs) i said why would david milch call me I said, why would David Milch call me? He's like, Josie, go on IMDb. I have this new project in the works. I I told you I was going to give you a part. 
I really like you. However, I need you to be trained. Um, I see you as a dramatic actress. I said, well, Milch, I can sell anything. I'm number one. Playboy was number one. Farmer Wants a Wife, I was number one. Hollywood and Wine, I'm very funny. He's like, no. I want you, I see you as a dramatic actress. Um, I'm going to send you to my coach who works with all my stars. And this is going to take some time. And um, you are going to, I'm going to turn you into, I'm going to write you in as a series regular. I said, series regular. You know, I was just on Dr. Phil and I thought maybe a five and under and then I can get my own reality show and get the cover of a magazine and, and be a bullshitter like Paris Hilton and Kim Kardashian. I mean, series regular. I said, I don't know. He's like, look, I see you as written in as a series regular. So I was even looking to be a series regular. What made you scared of saying yes to series regular? Like you didn't believe you could, because you always say, I can do that, I can do that, yeah, I'll just I, listen to it. But what put you off doing that? My, my passion was really like being a reality TV personality or a host. Like when I posed for Playboy in 2008, you have to write like what your end goal is. And my end goal was to like have my own talk show or, or be me. Like I didn't think I was talented enough to be a series regular. I'm talented enough to do PR and make a show going number one and be funny. And, well, things and, that rely on your personality. Yeah, things, yeah, that's it. So I just wanted something little where I could go back and then go back to my shtick of, of being in reality TV. Oh, okay. But he tried to formulate me and make me like a, a series, you know, regular. So anyway, so Mill hung up the phone and he would like start calling me like, you know, every week or every other week. And then he sent me to his coach. And when I started working with the coach, like I went into such a depression. It was the most depressing thing I've ever done because like I couldn't get it. I I didn't feel it. And I didn't know this, but they try to break you down. You can't be you. Like it's like they want to control you. I don't know. It's like really weird. Like and you picked up on that. I picked up or maybe it's my imagination, but I thought, you know what? This is a chance in a lifetime. And she threw me the script and she said, read it and go. But I'm not, a, I'm not an independent self learner. I have to be spoon fed. And I yelled at the coach. I said, Julie, I didn't yell at her. I said, I'm number one, everything I do, but I need you to show me what you need. And then I'll follow your lead. And she's like, that's not how acting works. Acting works is where you learn the skill and you have to get there yourself. Nobody's going to tell you how to do it. I said, but I don't really care of feeling it and doing it. I can barely pay my rent and I want to get back on TV so I can meet more men and continue on with my career. And I just want to learn the part so that when I walk in and read for Milch, I'm going to get it. And um, I, I'm a business person. And she's like, well, that's not how I work. I'm formulating you to be an actor. I hate to say it. She's right. Yeah, she's right. I didn't want to hear that. Yeah, yeah because yeah, I was because yeah. I was 28. I was in Playboy. I was in because I'm a director. Oh, and, you're a director. Uh, yeah, okay. and that's that. I, I direct more than I act. Yeah, and it's correct. It's wanting to get people out of their head. Yeah. So three months go by with coaching, and um, I remember it was the day of the earthquake. I, it was March 8th or 9th, and there was a big earthquake in Japan, and. Um, David, they were filming Locke and Milch started playing games like Brett Ratner. Same situation. Your part will be ready in two weeks. Get ready. And then he would say, oh, you know, um, sorry, but somebody else took the part. And so this went on for like a month and a half. At this point, Josie, though, all your eggs are in this basket. Yeah. This is, this is the thing. Yeah. So I'm like waiting for this part. It's been a year. I was on the pilot. Now the show went into production. So yeah, the coach was kind of weird with me. She's like, you know, he's married. I'm friends with his wife. I said, so? I said, Pfft. Nothing happened. There was no sex. There, no, just, 
can't you love your director? Like, it's not like any sex happened. People have crushes. They admire. You know, sometimes you can have an emotional affair with somebody and you adore them. It doesn't mean, right, Greta? I mean, have you ever fallen? I mean, every actress. Oh, completely. In, you, fall, you have a crush. I call your, it friend crush. Friend crush. Yeah, I do. I yeah, you're like, you're like uh, yeah, it's like you don't really think that there's anything going to yeah, eventuate. I, but I just, I said, I, I told you. But you me. like their energy and you like being around their energy, I right? I liked him. Yeah. I, I liked him. And, I, and, I, and I, if he was 20 years younger, I could have married him. So I thought, okay. I saw her Tuesday and then I go back Thursday. Thursday and during the session she's like you know I'm psychic and I just don't think you're a good thespian and I don't think you can do the part and I'm going to call David Milch and I'm going to tell him that the part is not for you I do think that you're going to be like Kim Kardashian and you're going to get another run and you're going to be a reality star but things have to be written for you you can't accommodate the part you will only be able to be inscripted when people write it about you I said no don't call him and tell him that I'll come back again and tell me what and I'll do whatever it takes. But I need that part for, you know, Dr. Phil. I was going back and forth. She's like, no, he pays me money to find good talent and to work with his talent. And I just don't see it. How did you feel hearing that? Oh, my God. I felt mortified. Yeah. I was like, I then I thought, well, maybe I should have maybe these girls in Hollywood give blowjobs or do the nasty I don't know what the hell I did I hugged him for th- like a couple minutes and I wouldn't let go and Eddie didn't give me the part you know that's like not even that's not even first base that's like two meters towards first yeah, base towards, towards meter. so I'm I was like really sad so I come home and I call him and he says to me um I said David like what happened can you just meet with me and let me read for you my part and if you think I'm bad then she's like no I pay her money and she's been my coach with all my talent for many years and I trust whatever she says and you're a shitty thespian so I said to him I said you know David I said God's gonna punish you so I hung up the phone and I was really like upset. I was like devastated. Like that was, that was worse than the Playboy thing in Brett Ratner. Like that was just like, God's not going to turn his back on me down. I, I'm a Jewish woman. So this uh, is after you've gone through. So you have a period of just like devastation. And then after that, you get into the, yeah, the vengeful. Yeah. Vengeful. Yeah. I go into my vengeful. So I drive down to the film where they're filming at Santa Anita. I dress up. Playboy. This is so good. I, I <laughs> I already know what's coming. I already know what's coming. Yeah, I don't, I don't, but I can imagine. I drive up, I look my best, I put on my best sexy dress, my high heels, my hair, my makeup. And after crying for a week, I said, Josie Goldberg took out Playboy with the, with the, with the, with the Marge Simpson and, and Dr. Phil. And I'm not going to let this A-list director get the best of me. He's what is he, a young stud, 40-year-old man. So uh, I get to the racetrack. Where they're filming, yeah. Where they're filming. The, the show that he promised you you'd be on. Yeah. The pilot that got picked up. You've spent eight months. And so now they're filming the first episode of it. You're not included. And you're driving to the set. Yeah. I'm driving to the set. And I'm thinking, I can do this. Park my car with valet. And I go to the set looking for him and I knew where his table was, where he sits during the live races because during filming he would go and watch the races. And I go up to this place called The Front Runner and um, I start looking for him and people at the racetrack are like, oh my God, you're so beautiful. Like, what are you doing here? I said, well, my name is Josie. I'm one of David Milch's actresses and he really hurt my feelings. I'm a Jewish woman. He promised me a part and I'm here to get my part and to talk to him and not let this other people mendel in my relationship with Milch. So I bumped into this breeder. His name was Terry. He was 6'5", or 6'6", very handsome. And he's like, well, you know, why don't you come down and just sit down and 
let, let me get you a glass of champagne. And then he's like, my friend Phil is going to come up and introduce you. So Phil comes up and I start, he's Italian, Phil's Italian, Terry's French. And the three of us are hanging out and they take me to the turf club. And at that time I'm on drink number two. I start getting even more emotional. For some reason, I never saw Milch that day. I think he saw me, Greta, and he bolted because I think he was scared to like tell me to my face. Yep. And um, within a couple days, you know, Phil really liked me, this Italian guy. And they had horses running. They had this horse, Willoughby Awesome, running. And that day, um, the, the horse won. And Phil and Terry had about 40 horses. So horse racing went off like four to five days a week. So I'd go every day. And, and I started bringing them luck. Like the horses started winning and winning and winning. And at that time, Dr. Phil was playing spoiled and entitled, spoiled and entitled. So that gave me a little bit of fame at the horse business. Do you think that's a bit ironic that you keep bringing them luck? And the show that you were supposed to be on was called Luck. Yeah. It's like a weird and was, coincidence. Okay. So then, so two weeks go by and, you know, I, I found myself a job, you know, because I'm getting commission off of all the horses winning, you know. So within two weeks, my friend calls me. She says, turn on the TV, Josie Goldberg. You fucking did it again. It said, breaking news, Fox News alert, HBO Luck has been canceled. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to lie. It made me feel good. I, I know that sounds really well. bad. God, I, I think God punished Milch for what he did to me because, I mean, I almost had a nervous breakdown. I, I think that, you know, he screwed with the wrong person. So, you know, I started, you know, going to the races about three to four days a week. But I think when when they see somebody that was so broken down like myself, um, my partner Phil said to me that um, he's a Catholic. He said, Jesus told me to save your life. And me and Terry are bringing you into partnership because we want to help you. It's really unfair. So it was like- They probably saw your tenacity that yeah. you weren't going to give up. Yeah. Yeah. So they give me these three horses. Uh, one was only Josie Knows. The other was spoiled and entitled. And the other was them Josie Gave Lakes. them to you? Well, they brought me into partnership. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. They brought me into partnership and they gave me a percentage. And um, I didn't know at the time, but you know, these horses, they're therapeutic animals. So while I'm fighting this depression and anxiety- um, the horses, they were like self-medicating, you know, seeing these like babies, like getting carrots and talking to them and going, t- turning them into these champions. That was like healing, was it? It was like healing. Like it gave me a meaning to life, like to see this beautiful animal. I, I kind of realized that it's about building myself up and putting myself in a position so that man can't ever take me down again. The last six years, um, I've developed myself. Uh, I'm in real estate and I own horses with Phil still and I'm a breeder and um, I I developed a seven-year relationship with these people that gave me that confidence to improve my life. I don't think I'm getting there like 100%, but I think I'm on my way and I'm mentally a lot happier and uh, nobody can make or break my day yet. Great. That's great. I I mean, who knows? What a different place to be in though. My mom sometimes says to me, you're bitter. I I don't know if I'm bitter, but like, I just... I think you've made a career from bitterness. (laughs) Speaking with Josie was surreal. It was clear that she was there to prove to me that she was a successful person. And I felt talked at. Of course, I was fascinated to get to the bottom of how her unusual value system worked. However, whenever I spoke, I could feel she wanted me to shut up and let her keep talking. Which is fine if that's what works for you. But personally, I have found that the most successful people let their achievements speak for them and are uncomfortable bigging themselves up. 
Some allowances do have to be made for Josie, though, because living in Hollywood makes it more socially acceptable than most places to aggressively convince those around you that you are a successful and capable person. So on one hand, I think that stopping and listening once in a while can benefit a person's professional and personal relationships. On the other hand, not listening to what people were telling her just made Josie fight harder for what she wanted. So I don't know what to think. And that's how I'll leave it. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to share your fails with me, you can contact me on my Facebook page or Twitter. Fail! Listener.